Welcome on in to Studio 2 on a Thursday. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Matt Gillum in for Avi Wolfman Aaron. Very happy to be back happy here in to Studio have you 2. Here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Up ahead for us in just a bit, we're going to be talking about the recent and concerning measles outbreak in the region, what's being done about it, and what started it to begin with. Looking forward to that. And a little bit later on, with the Philadelphia Auto Show starting this weekend, Matt, we wanted to hear about some of the latest trends in the industry. I know you're excited about this segment. We are revving it up. Yes, I love that. Feel free to send your questions to studio2 at whyy.org. Or you can write down our number for later in the hour, and that's 888, uh, let me, I don't even know our four number. 477 9499. There it is. All right. Plus, we have new rights for gig workers. We're going to hear about the pros and cons of a new federal rule. But first, Cherry, let's uh, take a look at some of the hot news of the day. Yeah, one of the big stories that caught my eye this morning, the GOP presidential primary field, well, it is shrinking. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie announced Wednesday that he is suspending his campaign. Christie dropped out of the race less than two weeks before voters head to the primary polls in New Hampshire. And as you know, Matt Christie was the most vocal candidate railing against former President Donald Trump. There have been calls for him to drop out of the race to not spoil Nikki Haley's bid. But here's what he had to say at a town hall on Wednesday. This is a fight for the soul of our party and the soul of our country. I am going to make sure that in no way do I enable Donald Trump to ever be president of the United States again. And that's more important than my own personal ambition. Now, in another bit of tea, Matt, don't you like the little tea? Well, Christie left his mic on, and while it was still hot, he made clear that he does not believe in Haley, and he said, quote, she's going to get smoked. She's not up to this. Ouch. I know. Haley has repeatedly refused to say whether she would be Trump's vice president nominee and said she would pardon him if elected. Now, this meant that that GOP debate last night in Iowa was head-to-head between just Haley two. and DeSantis. It's That's now it. down to just two, at least. We had we had DeSantis yeah. and we had Haley on the stage. But, of course, there was a counter-programming. Donald oh. Trump not on the stage there mm-hmm. in Iowa. He was at a town hall put on by Fox News where he uh, was making making some own news of, news of his own, we should say. Uh, he did say that he knows who his vice president is going to be, but uh, that was the end of that. So mm-hmm. big question mark there. And he's been getting so much attention for the the sort of retribution that has been a, a key theme of his reelection bid so far. But he said that he is not going to have time for retribution in the second term, said, quote, the ultimate retribution is success. Uh, but remember, he also said he'd be a dictator only on day one. So we will see if he is moderating at least a little bit as the field shrinks down to appeal to a broader audience. And if he is moderating, will it last? Because track record shows probably not. Yeah, very interesting. Lots to talk about as we head into the 2024 presidential election. That's right. We've got some local news yeah. when it comes to elections. Uh, Philadelphia City Commissioner was ousted, uh, Democrat Lisa Dealey. Mm-hmm. She's no longer the chair. This was after a brief special meeting yesterday. There's now a new head of of the, the, the those three, mm-hmm. and this means less concentrated power. That's I, I understand that was why Dealey was was shown the door essentially mm-hmm. of the leadership position mm-hmm. was because she was continually concentrating power now uh, other staffers will be a little more free to do what they want yeah and the new chair of the commissioners is omar sabir he's also a democrat 
And he got backing from the lone Republican on the board. That's Commissioner Seth Bluestein. Um, now, Sabir had first nominated Dealey, but she didn't like the new rules, so she didn't second that nomination. And then, of course, he was able to move on up and now be chair. So what does this mean? Under the new rules, the different commissioners now, they can hire staff. They can also set salaries for that staff. There's also going to be some directors there, a director of election administration and a director of election operations. And, of course, all eyes will be you know, on Pennsylvania, because we're a swing state, and Philadelphia, huge voting block in the swing state. Well, exactly. This is this is a local story, but it has national ramifications, because like you say, all eyes are on Pennsylvania in 2020, and it is a swing state. Odds are good. We're going to be in the spotlight again later this year. Yeah, someone else who's in the spotlight today, Mayor Sherelle Parker announced that the Philadelphia Police Department has tapped a new deputy commissioner, Pedro Rosario will now head the department's strategy in Kensington with a goal to end those open-air drug markets in that section of the city. He gave some remarks when this was announced, and take a listen. I am deeply committed to fostering a culture of collaboration where every member of our community will be heard, will be valued, and will be empowered. You know, Mayor, my wife and I had the privilege of attending your inauguration, and we were inspired by your message of hope, accountability, and supporting the end of lawlessness and ensuring the return of lawfulness. You heard that. Those are the words that, you know, uh, Mayor Sherelle Parker made during her multiple speeches, and Rosario will now be the Philadelphia's first Latino uh, deputy commissioner in police department history. And as you know, Matt, I mean, the mayor called, declared a public safety emergency on the same day she took office, you know, and she has said that tackling these open air drug market and other issues in Kensington are part of her 100 day plan. But we were talking a little bit about this before the show. Yeah. This is this is a big deal because you've been here quite some time. I'm yeah. new. This is the first time that you remember yeah. that there is now a, a dedicated point person mm-hmm. taking on mm-hmm. all of the issues in Kensington. Yeah. And so people are going to be watching this closely. Um, they want to they want to see progress. And she's made our mayor has made it a top priority. So we'll be watching to see what the new deputy commissioner Rosario does. So that that is taking up some of the news today. But another thing making news is a measles outbreak here in Philadelphia. Yes, yes, yes. There have been eight cases identified in city limits so far, and there are now two more possible exposures we're getting word of in Montgomery County. This isn't the first time in recent years Philly has seen an outbreak of the highly infectious virus. To find out more about what can be done to contain and prevent this illness, we spoke with pediatrician Dr. Paul Offit earlier this morning. He is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We started by asking him how yeah. the outbreak in Philly began. It began in a uh, seven-month-old child who had traveled outside of this country, um, and it was a difficult diagnosis to make. He had an unusual rash. He had fever. He didn't have dehydration. He didn't have pneumonia. So he didn't look like a sort of typical measles case. And the reason was, is that his mother had been both vaccinated and naturally infected. So she passively transferred antibodies through the placenta to her baby. And even at seven months of age, those antibodies still had a moderating effect 
on the on the measles. So it didn't look like typical measles. And I think that's what fooled people. And then, you know, during that time, which we learned that this child had measles and how many people she'd been exposed to, um, that's when it started. Well, can you talk a little bit about, about vaccinating for measles? Because it seems like, as you said, there was some natural immunity in this case, but most of these patients are very young and, and perhaps even too young to be vaccinated for measles, right? Well, um, we suffered a measles epidemic in 1991 that was like no other. I think any of us who were around at that time certainly remember it. It was a scarring experience. There were, in our city, over a few-month period, 1,400 cases of measles and nine deaths. It was so bad that people were afraid to come into the city. Uh, we vaccinated at that time down to six months of age because we had to. We, you know, you had a lot of uh, deaths in the community from people who were too young to have been vaccinated. And so we vaccinated down to six months of age. So you can, but only in the most extreme circumstances. And so fast forward in 2000, um, the United States declared, you know, measles, you know, a disease that no longer existed in many cases because the vaccination effort had been so successful. And so now in 2019, we saw a major outbreak. We're seeing an outbreak, you know, very recently. Why is this happening now, do you think? I think it was a one-two punch. I think the first punch was this publication by a British researcher claiming that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine or MMR vaccine caused autism. Now, that was wrong. 18 studies subsequently showed that that was wrong. But that scared people. And, and when you scare people, it's hard to unscare them. So that started to lower immunization rates in this country. The second thing that I think happened was COVID. I mean, what COVID did was by mandating vaccines in the manner that we mandated it, we caused this sort of libertarian pushback against vaccines, so much so that there were more than 800 bills last year to push back on masking mandates, push back on vaccine mandates. And as a consequence, there was a decrease in uh, immunization rates among school children. As about 35% of American parents now think there shouldn't be school vaccine mandates, period. So with that, you saw a drop in immunization rates in kindergartners to around 92, 93% which is less than is required for the herd immunity to protect against measles. Well, with herd immunity declining and this this epidemic of misinformation, I mean, how, how do we combat that? What do you do as a doctor and what can, can citizens do to promote sound science that is that is proven? Well, the best way to combat it is to get people to understand what measles is. I think measles vaccination has to some extent been a victim of its own success. Mm -hmm. I mean, not only have we eliminated measles, I think we've eliminated the memory of measles. And people don't re don't remember how sick measles can make you. I mean, measles is often a cause of pneumonia. It can infect the brain and cause encephalitis. It's, it's a common cause of dehydration. And it's a common cause for children coming into the hospital. Before there was a measles vaccine, there'd be about 50,000 hospitalizations every year in this country for measles and 500 deaths, and people don't remember that. So the best way to do this is to try and get people to understand what this virus is and what it can do. Um, but I really think, and this is a pessimistic view, but I think that in some ways, the only way people tend to fear these diseases is to see them again. And maybe once again, we're going to have to see what was seen in Columbus uh, in, in 2022, Columbus, Ohio, when there were 85 children who got measles, virtually all of whom were hospitalized, virtually none of whom were, were uh, vaccinated. And now we're starting to see it in this city. The people need to see the disease to realize just how bad it can be, because it's invariably the most vulnerable among us, our children who suffer our ignorance. 
And and so that we don't assume knowledge, because a lot of people have no idea what measles is, what it looks like. So can you give us some of the basics? Right. So so um, you acquire it via so-called aerosolized droplets, meaning these little small droplets can that can hang in the air for as long as two hours. So you can you don't have to have face to face contact of somebody with measles to get measles. You just have to be in their airspace. It's the most contagious of the vaccine preventable diseases. It has a, a so-called contagiousness index, meaning how many people would you infect during a day if you were infected and everybody you came in contact with was susceptible. That index is around 18. To put that in perspective, the contagiousness index for flu or for COVID is around two to four. So it is the most contagious of the vaccine preventable diseases. When you get infected, you have typically congestion, uh, cough, uh, runny nose, and then pink eye, conjunctivitis. The, 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 the rash starts at the hairline, spreads down to the face, then the trunk, then the arms and legs. Um, about as many as half of children who have measles, if you get a chest x-ray, well, well, you will have abnormal chest x-ray findings. Um, and then uh, it, the virus, as I said, can cause both dehydration and uh, pneumonia. When we suffered our measles outbreak in, in Philadelphia in 1991, that's what got children into the hospital dehydration and pneumonia. But remember, you don't want measles in your hospital because it's a highly contagious disease. It's really hard to stop spread. And in the hospital, there are vulnerable children who can't be vaccinated. And we're much better now than we were 30 years ago at, at giving immunosuppressive therapies, which put children at even greater risk. Well, you said that this was a, a vaccine-preventable illness, one, but the most contagious of them. If you are vaccinated against measles, do you still need to be concerned by this or are, are you safe? I think you're safe. I think one dose of vaccine offers about 93% protection. That second dose gives you about 97% protection. It is a highly effective vaccine. It's one of our most effective vaccines. So yes, I think if you're vaccinated or if you've been naturally infected, as I have as a child of the 1950s, I will be protected against measles for the rest of my life. I mean, usually for these kinds of diseases, these so-called long incubation period diseases, where from the time of exposure to developing symptoms can be you know, two weeks, sometimes longer, um, Usually all you need is immunological memory and memory cells are usually long lived. Uh, so um, I think, yeah, I think if you've gotten even one dose of vaccine, you, you are highly, highly likely to be protected. And as we wrap up, I know the city is offering free MMR vaccines to residents in Philadelphia. I guess it's never too late uh, to get vaccinated. What is the, the time frame as, as far as for young children? When is the right time? Well, right now we're back giving that first dose at 12 to 15 months of age. The second dose typically is four to six years of age. I hope we don't have to do what we did in 1991 was to go back and vaccinate as, as young as six months of age. I, I hope we don't have to do that. But um, usually about a week after that first dose, you are going to develop the kind of antibody response that will be protected. But get if you're not vaccinated against this virus, get vaccinated because... For any of us who lived through that 1991 epidemic, uh, which killed nine children in this in this uh, city, um, I, I really uh, don't want to relive that. None of us do. And um, I think you have to realize just how bad this virus is. I mean, people sort of think of it as a, a typical childhood infection, sort of a rite of childhood passage in the old days. No, this is a bad disease. And we'll leave it there. That was Dr. Paul Offit, pediatrician and director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thanks for your time. Thank you. And by the way, city residents who'd like to get one of those free MMR vaccines, you can go to three different Philadelphia health centers. You can get that list on the city's website or on our website at whyy.org. 
And coming up for us in just a minute or so, we're going to be talking about gig workers and a new Biden administration rule that may give them access to better pay and benefits. Email your questions to studio2 at whyy.org, or you can give us a ring. The number is 888-477-9499. You're listening to Studio 2. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome on back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Matt Gillum in for Avi. There's big news this week for gig workers, Cherry. Mm -hmm. New labor rule from the Biden administration could give them more protections and benefits. It centers on who counts as an independent contractor versus an employee. And there are around 75 million gig workers in the the U.S., excuse me, folks who drive for Uber, DoorDash, but also construction workers and traveling nurses. Some estimates find gig work makes up around a third of the U.S. workforce. So I imagine this rule could have an enormous impact when it goes into effect in March. And to explain what this rule will mean for workers and businesses, we've asked Lindsay Cameron to join us. She's a professor of management at the Wharton School. Welcome to Studio Two, Lindsay. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here today. Lindsay, we're happy to have you. And of course, if you are a gig worker, we'd love to hear from you. What do you think of the new rule? Or if you are a business owner relying on contractors, what is it going to mean for you? Call us 888 888- Four seven seven nine four nine nine, or you can email us as well at studio2 at whyy.org. And Lindsay, before we lay out what the new rule is, I want us want you to kind of give us an explanation of what a gig worker is and how that person or what they do differs from traditional empl- being in a traditional employee or working as an employee. So when you think about the word gig worker, it's pretty broad. So your babysitters that you might hire, maybe you were a babysitter back, you know, when you were a teenager, Um, musicians do gigs. So we consider these folks sort of like the the OG, the original gig Mm. worker. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the reason this is sort of Um, sort of come up again is that these on-demand companies that are Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, they use an app to sort of link together workers and clients to get short-term work assignments done. They rely on these independent contractors, these gig workers as well. So there've been a lot of questions about the algorithmic management systems that underpin these platforms. And are these a, a type of control? And if these workers are under controlled, are they actually employees versus independent contractors? So, and, you know, just- I know, and so I was to, gonna do the quick follow-up question. So that does that mean that more traditional employees have more control from their employers? That, Yes, a traditional employee that's going to an office every day from nine to five, you have sort of a clear terms that you're being evaluated about, um, you know, performance procedures. Definitely employees are under more control by the organization than a typical independent contractor. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about the rule exactly? What what is it? How does it work? As I understand it, this this new rule from the Biden administration rescinds a Trump era policy. Mm. So so what is changing, and how how are we expanding who counts as an employer? 
So the, the Trump administration had a much, um, it made it easier to classify workers as independent contractors. They were basically just asking two questions, the one centered around control and one about whether or not the, the worker had space to create more entrepreneurial adventures. So what this this ruling that's come out from the Biden administration, which, you know, there were talk about that they were working on this earlier in the summer, actually makes, you know, put stricter standards in place to, to about who can be an independent contractor. Because typically, to have an independent contractor cost an organization less money, which often translates into less money for a worker that are independent contractors as opposed to employees. So with this new ruling, it would change the classification for some workers that are commonly misclassified, such as you mentioned, people in home health care, security guards, construction workers, but also these on-demand app workers. And that's going to result in a real change in their income if they are now classified as employees as opposed to independent contractors. Well, I just want to go a little bit further on this new Biden administration policy. It has something about a test uh, that's used to determine the status of the workers. Can you can you walk us through what, what the criteria are? You said there was two under the Trump administration. There mm-hmm. are more now, correct? Yeah, so there's more questions about are the workers economically dependent on this type of job, you know, thinking about control in a much broader way, different managerial systems the organizations might use to control workers, you know, whether, you know, if their algorithms involved and the nudges might be involved. So it's a more multi-pronged consideration that the Biden administration is suggesting, which again would have more workers being classified potentially as employees as opposed to independent contractors and getting more of the benefits that employees do get. And if you are just tuning in, we are speaking with Lindsay Cameron, a management professor at Penn's Wharton School, uh, who is researching the gig economy. If you are a gig worker or if you feel some kind of way about this new Biden rule, give us a call. That number is 888-477-9499. Or you can email studio2 at whyy.org. So what are some of the upsides and downsides? I want to hear like the reaction that you've gotten. Um, What are the upsides of this new rule and what are some of the downsides? So I think the clearest upside is in in terms of pay. So -hmm. if you're an independent contractor, you're not paid for maybe like your wait time. You know, maybe if you're a home health care worker, it could be the time that you're driving in between people's homes. If you're um, an app-based worker, it could be the time you're at the restaurant with DoorDash waiting for the 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 order. So you're going to get paid for this wait time if you're an employee in a way that you aren't if you're an independent contractor. It also means that a portion of your payroll taxes would be covered by the organization as opposed to being, you know, completely, uh, you know, the the workers being held responsible for it. It also means there are a whole host of benefits and protections you are now eligible to as an employee around workers' uh, workers comp or getting uh, protection from the Equal Opportunity Office. So there are a lot of benefits, particularly in the United States, that are tied up about being an employee that workers would get if they're classified as employees as opposed to independent contractors. And the downsides. So the downside, so you could hear some workers. So I used to be an Uber driver for 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 quite a few years. Mm-hmm. So I think this this law is really a plus for workers who are lower paid workers. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you'll hear from workers who are more higher paid gig workers. So you think of 
I don't know, maybe people that are doing creative projects or programmers that are doing more contract-based work. And for those, you know, economic dependency isn't poor to them in the same way because the work is more higher paid, that there could be concerns. They're, they might have less creative control over their work. They might feel like being an employee would give them less schedule flexibility than they might have as an independent contractor. You know, maybe they want to take three months off work and that maybe is not possible in the same way if they're an employee. So I think some of the downsides are more, you hear more about that from the higher paid workers than opposed to people, workers who are more lower paid that really see this much more as a win. So while the lower paid uh, gig workers will see lots of benefits from this, as you said, money, protections and things like that, I'm, I'm wondering how are the companies uh, mm. reacting to this? Are, are, are some of these big gig companies, Uber, Lyft, the like, uh, on board with the changes or are they, are they giving any pushback? Do they see this impacting consumers at all? You know, I think that's a really tricky and a good question you're asking. You know, Uber and Lyft have both made public statements saying that this this change will not force the company to change its business model. But at the same time, they're also stating, well, this does actually create more complexities mm. because particularly. And, and so it's, you know, there are many cases that are sort of going around in state courts. You may have talked about AB5 or Prop 22 in California that's, you know, looking at the same issue around workers misclassification. I mean, these on-demand companies are, you know, their profit margins are slim. They're very much being relying on venture capital for the first few years to help subsidize their operations until they get market dominance. And they're getting huge cost savings, 30 to 40% by having workers being classified as independent contractors as opposed to employees. So it's going to affect these companies in some way. And so, you know, I think that the question is out about how they might respond to this. I, I mean, I, I have to ask, we've we talked about how many people, how large this gig economy is. I was shocked. That, that, I was shocked that at a that. A third of workers are, are in the gig economy. Essentially. Yeah. What makes gig work so appealing to people, especially now that you see the amount that, you know, for example, Uber drivers are able to take home is going down and it's getting less, less, less. What makes gig work so attractive to so many people? So, you know, there's a narrative about schedule flexibility, you know, in being your own boss. And I think that is a part of it. But I think you also need to think about what are the other options are for these group of workers. Mm. Like, you, you know, you look at someone who's going to choose to to drive, um, you know, for a ride hailing company or do food delivery for a living. What other types of work are, are you know, are offered to them? You look at what had the highest gro job growth during the um, pandemic. It was warehouse work. Mm -hmm. So if your options are McDonald's, Target, you know, retail works, food work, or, you know, really hard work in a manufacturing center, you know, maybe driving for, for Uber or DoorDash seems like the best out of a set of, you know, not so great options. And I think that's part of it that it speaks to the appeal of this type of work. In addition to this narrative of being your own boss, though I think that narrative is tricky because if you're economically dependent on this work, do you really have schedule flexibility? You've got to drive at high demand times. Well, a little bit earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the the sort of multiple criteria that are used to determine the status of workers now. And I can't help but think that some of them sound rather squishy and open to lots of mm. interpretation. So is is this going to be litigated for for forever essentially? 
<laughs> That's a good question. I'm going to be watching this. You know, mm. this is coming out at the national level, but so many states, you know, as I mentioned, um, California, Massachusetts have been thinking about this in their courts, but also cities have too. You know, New York City last year passed a law that gave workers a minimum wage and other types of benefits. So I think we're seeing this conversation in the United States play out at the state level, the municipal level, the country level. And in other countries, you know, Uber, these ride hailing or app driver or app workers are employees. And so, and, you know, this is... Um, this is a conversation. It's not just a domestic conversation. Um, you know, these these companies are new. They're changing the economy. And like from a regulatory perspective, we're trying to figure out, you know, how to engage with them and how to protect workers' rights at the same time. And I got to ask, because I'm thinking Social Security, right? Because a lot of gig workers, if you're independent, a lot of people skirt the Social Security tax. I wonder if this is like a quiet way to sort of like, you know, increase the coffers for the Social Security benefit. <laughs> does government stand to benefit here? Yeah, does here? government benefit here? Because this is, when I heard that, I'm like, okay, they'll get the, the Social Security tax too. You're right. You know, this is, you know, I think this is an argument that you don't hear as much, but company, I mean, by classifying workers as independent contractors, yes, the organization saves money, but the federal government loses out because people are not, you know, may not report the full scope of their wages, or also they're not being paid for some sorts of, of, of work. And so then again, that's not, you know, they're not being paid for it. So therefore they can't pay taxes on it. So yes, the government would make more money if they're going to get more workers sort of in sort of the proper employment book. Mm-hmm. I always think there's some yeah. kind of like <laughs> secret benefits there. If only if only this were <laughs> if only we could see Cherry right now. She is absolutely beaming that this theory is is being validated. I was like the government is trying to better. Yeah, exactly. But we but as we get ready to wrap up, we got to ask, I mean, will consumers have to end up having to pay more as more people are Is bought your food online. delivery going to cost more? Yeah. Is your Airbnb going to go up? How is it all going to work? Oh, yes. I mean, you've probably seen, uh, uh, you know, prices for many of these on-demand services have risen since 2016, sort of where I think where they really became used in mass. And I think part of that, you know, I think Uber was first profitable maybe two quarters ago is one is they were relying on a lot of venture capital money to keep them afloat, to sort of allow them to yeah. sort of grow rapidly at all costs. So you're seeing an increase in prices for this. If this is changes and that they're going to have to be employees, we're also going to see a rise in prices, but I think that is what they're meant to be. Like you have to pay the fair price for a service and not rely on these different types of subsidies that are coming from different ways. And, you know, I think this raises an important question because yeah. we're coming to depend on these workers. We depend on home health, health care. We, have, right, to Lindsay, Lindsay, there, we're gonna have, to, we have to leave it there. Yeah. But Lindsay we Cameron, a professor of management at the Wharton School. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us here in studio too. Thank you so much for having me. Ahead for us, we are going to pedal to the metal and talk car trends from electric to self-driving. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Matt Gillum in for Avi Wolfman Arendt. 
The auto show is rolling into Philadelphia this weekend, and as a Southern Californian, you know I'm no stranger to cars or traffic. Uh, But aside from concept vehicles and a few high-end cars at the show, there's a lot happening writ large in the auto industry. EVs, hybrids, even some back-to-the-future stuff like self-driving technology. Sounds really hot to me. And then there is, of course, the classic gas powered car old reliable yeah even with all the attention around electric vehicles gasoline is still a leader for many americans mostly because of spotty charging locations and road infrastructure well matt with us is greg migliore he is the editor-in-chief of autoblog and he has some insider information on the industry for us greg welcome to studio two good afternoon thank you for having me And before we hit the gas, we want to hear from you. Do you have questions about cars? Are you thinking about buying a new one and don't know what it should be? Well, call us up, the number 888-477-9499, or shoot us an email, studio2 at whyy.org. And so, Greg, let's talk about the auto market generally. Seems like things are looking up for this year with increased predictions, you know, with increased supply predictions, should I say, what does the market look like for consumers? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think right now we're seeing a a more stable market than we've seen in a few years. Uh, Consumers have access to, you know, more agreeable credit rates. There's a better supply of cars, you know, both new and used on Mm -hmm. dealer lots. It's easier to buy a car than ever before because you can certainly use the internet to, you know, make an informed decision. And we're looking at seeing a market uh, of new vehicles at least approaching 16 million, uh, which would be up a little bit uh, over 2023. So I think it's going to be a good year. I bought a car during COVID, and so it was it was <laughs> not fun. It, it it must be a lot easier and better to do that now. Um, I'm wondering what we can expect in terms of the auto show sort of generally. Are we looking at more electrics, hybrids? I mean, as as we as Cherry said in the intro, still plenty of gas cars out there as well. Yeah, it, it auto shows like the Philadelphia Auto Show. Uh, usually automakers try to show some of, you know, a good sampling that represents what they're doing right now, but also what they're going to do, you know, in the coming years. So you'll see some things you could go out and buy in a dealership lot right now. And also some things like electric cars, you know, like the Chevy Blazer EV, the Chevy Equinox EV, uh, Volkswagen ID4, electric cars that are, you know, available soon and coming in the future. And it's a mix right now. We're in kind of a transition in the car business. There's plug-in hybrids. There's sort of traditional hybrids that you don't plug in. You just drive them normally, as well as gas vehicles and electric vehicles. So it's really an interesting time, I think, in the car business. Yeah, and I got to ask you, you mentioned this increased, you know, production a little bit. Um, Does this mean that we'll get better deals as consumers? Um, Will vehicles be more affordable since we're in this transition period? So unfortunately, I don't think vehicles are going to get more affordable. I think it's, you know, cars are like any sort of, you know, consumer good or commodity where, the price just always seems to be going up. You know, we're in an inflationary market. Uh, the average price of a new vehicle uh, has been $48,000, which, you know, for those of us of a certain age, that's almost unthinkable. You know, that would seem to be like a luxury car, but that's just, you know, right now the average price. So prices are still going to be going up in line with other consumer goods. 
But at the same time, it's easier to buy a car now than it was during the pandemic, during, you might remember, the chip shortage uh, right before and during the pandemic. Uh, there are more cars available. Again, there's more credit available for people who like to finance their new vehicles. And it's definitely more of a friendly, friendlier buyer's market than it has been in some time. Still a little tricky, uh, but friendlier than perhaps 22, 23, especially 20, 2021, those times. All right, but yes, but what about incentives when it comes to mm-hmm. electric vehicles? Are those still are those is the market still flush with with money for people that are looking to buy an EV to help subsidize that? There's definitely still some available, and it depends. Uh, the way it works is it's a bit of a cap. Every manufacturer has so many you can sell. Some companies are reaching that sort of threshold. Others still have some room to go, and also they've. Uh, in recent years, the Biden administration has changed how the tax credit works. It's a little confusing, quite frankly. I, <laughs> I suggest you reach out to your accountant if you're thinking of buying an EV, which is definitely a different way of approaching car buying. Uh, but the car has to essentially be manufactured in America, as well as most of the battery components, all of the critical ones. So there's some vehicles that met that criteria and now don't. And then there's other vehicles that maybe are made in America, but they don't have the batteries made here. So it's a very nuanced approach right now. And then companies are taking different approaches. For example, General Motors has some EVs that would have been eligible for the $7,500 tax credit, which is significant on your taxes. It really Mm -hmm. is. Uh, But they're not because of the battery components. So, you know, GM, for example, is offering an incentive that the consumer until they could change those battery components and have them made in the United States and thus qualify for the the credit. So companies are getting very creative because they know uh, it's very competitive uh, among EV buyers. So consult your attorney and your accountant. (laughs) Sounds like like a plan. If you are just tuning in, we're talking about the auto market for this coming year with Greg Migliore. He is the editor-in-chief of Autoblog. If you have a question about buying a new car, buying a used car, any questions about what the auto market is going to look like, call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. We got a message, a question from Tom from Wayne who wants to know if it makes more sense to buy a new car or should you buy a used car? What's your take on that, Greg? Well, it sort of depends on your circumstance. You know, it depends on what segment you're in. It depends on how long you're looking to keep the vehicle. Uh, There's really no sort of blanket answer I guess I could give. Uh, A good example might be if you were looking to get perhaps, say, a a mid to larger SUV. Uh, Perhaps maybe you, you look to try to get a used vehicle because, you know, used cars have already taken that depreciation hit. So you could pay a little bit less and you know, still have a very good quality vehicle that you could drive for a long time. The tricky part is since say 2020, you know, when the pandemic hit and really changed how we buy everything, you know, vehicles included, is we've seen a bit of a phenomenon where used prices have risen so much that in some cases it's actually better to just buy a new car mm. because you get the new vehicle, you get that warranty. Why bother to drive a car that's, you know, several years old. So it's very much a case by case basis. And uh, it depends on the vehicle segment as well. 
Yeah, quick, quick follow up. Um, wondering, does it is it better to buy a car outright? And and I want to ask you this: buy a car outright cash, buy a car financed, or lease a vehicle if you're doing if you're going new. Sure. So there's there's pluses and minuses to each situation, uh, and a lot of it does come down to your own financial situation and just personal preference. You know, some people try to pay off their mortgages early, for example. Other people want to wait that out. Uh, For me, the way I would approach it is you sort of look at, you know, how liquid your cash on hand situation is and put, you know, a good amount of money down if you can. uh, So you get a lower monthly payment, you know, when you're buying. And then it really comes down to if you're going to finance the car, what kind of a rate are you going to get? For years, we saw what was essentially free money. Zero, one percent, you know, very low interest rates. And in that case, you might as well take the money. It's free money. Right. So take the finance option uh, and it will, you know, again, give you like a lower payment on your car. So that's what I would look for. Look for a good rate. uh, Try to, you know, buy within your means, buy the amount of vehicle that you need. Uh, You know, as Americans, we tend to almost overbuy. Like everybody seems like they need, you know, a three row SUV, whether you need it or not. be reasonable and your payment will land accordingly. And does that apply to leases as well? Yeah. Leases, I think the primary benefit there is perhaps you, your situation might change. Maybe you need a small car because you live in a city, but then you might move and you don't want to necessarily be locked into something. And once you've leased a car, you're sort of in that, you know, family. When you go back to the dealer to turn it in, of course, they're going to try to lease or sell Mm -hmm. you another car. So you can almost, in that sense, upgrade in a way you know, many people might do with their phones. Well, as we as we suss out buying a car, I, I'm wondering if somebody's on the fence about going fully electric right now. I mean, is this the time that to go all in or should you hold on to the vehicle for a little bit longer and wait another year or so just for more infrastructure or, or more more models to come out? I think it's a great time right now to seriously consider it. There's a lot of great uh, vehicles out there from both domestic brands as well as, you know, import brands, as well as even startup companies like Rivian, for example. Of course, Tesla's out there. So there's a wide selection of EVs and it's going to get only get better. They're going to I've read somewhere that the the number of EVs next year is going to increase exponentially. So it's a good time and I think it's going to get better. Uh, As a buyer, what you're going to want to do is think, how, how will I use this vehicle? Where am I going to charge it? And that's really the big question. The other thing, too, is are you willing to invest in a home charger? If you can have a charger at your home, uh, your life is going to be a lot easier because you won't be as reliant on the grid. Uh, and that really, I think, can be you know sort of the tipping point in how you make your decision is, are there chargers in the area? Are you willing to invest in a charger? And if the answer to both of those is yes, you should probably buy an EV if you're so inclined. Yeah. If it's yes and no or no and no, then maybe perhaps you look at a hybrid. And I want to bring in a caller. We have Brian from Quakertown who wants to talk about EVs. Brian, you're on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Can you guys hear me? I'm just yep. Yes, go ahead. Question or comment. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So... You know, it's actually really very timely for me. Um, My wife and I moved back into Pennsylvania and went to buy an EV 
Um, but as you're kind of talking, like prices are only going up as, you know, their commodity um, items. We're looking into the used market. Um, and the real thing that I want to kind of point out is that for me, it's a very interesting juxtaposition between what kind of range a vehicle has. Because in Quakertown, it's about an hour or so to Philadelphia if you take like 276. Um, you know, it might be another two hours to New York, you know, places that are fun to go to. And so range is a really important yeah. thing for me to consider. Um, and with certain products at the price range I'm wanting, like let's say the Nissan Leaf or the Bolt EV or the Bolt EUV, some of them can achieve the range I'm looking for, but then we're reaching a price point that's getting a little too uncomfortable, Yeah, you know, just based on how high interest rates are. And I just think it's a very interesting juxtaposition of where we are, like trying to be sustainable, trying to be, you know, a good steward to the environment, but also being a good steward to your own wallet. And thank you for that comment, um, Brian. And and I want to put that to you, Greg. I mean, with the prices going up, range is a consideration as well. What should you be thinking about if you want to go EV? I think you need to really look, uh, you know, again, the caller mentioned uh, the different commuting options that he, you know, sort of, you know, goes about. You need to kind of look, is there acceptable charging infrastructure on your route? And if so, you know, charging can be quick and painless, but it also cannot be. I've, you know, had experience trying to charge some EVs that I've tested and reviewed recently. And the infrastructure is a little spotty, you know, at least it is in Michigan. And I know in many places across the country, it is as well. Even though there's an adequate number of chargers by where I live and work, sometimes it's cold out and they don't charge as fast. So that can add a wrinkle to your day and your EV ownership. Uh, I would say you'd want to consider in the cost, you know, do you want to spend about $700, $800, $1,000 to get that charger in your home, which will make your life easier. Now, again, the caller mentioned cost, so you're adding to the cost. Uh, however, some companies will include that in the purchase of your vehicle. Perhaps you can negotiate with the dealer to get them to throw it in. You know, everything's negotiable, right? Uh, so yeah. it's tricky. And that's a very valid point. A lot of people are very into EVs for the environmental benefits. Uh, many of them look cool. They're designed in technology studies, but they're not cheap. Well, so as, you want to do your homework and try yeah. and get that tax credit if you can. Well, as we talk about EVs, we've got we've got an email from Andre. He says, I'm a driving enthusiast and see this is the most exciting time in automotive history. Electric cars aren't new, but their reliability, extended range, and availability is greater than ever. For people like me, I think there will always be a niche for a gas car, but I welcome EVs. So EVs definitely making inroads, even driving enthusiasts looking forward to them. But, Cherry, we have another email that uh, talks about auto shows, and let's sort of pivot from the technology, yes. mm-hmm. and, or the market, rather, to what we're seeing at auto shows. Yeah, for sure. We uh, have the Philadelphia Auto Show kicking off this weekend. Anything you're excited about? When it comes to auto shows in general, I think the best thing you could do is get in the cars. You know, some of the mm. displays are perhaps behind, like, screens and things. But if you're thinking of buying a car or learning more about that vehicle, get in there, sit in it, see how it feels. Whenever I go to an auto show, uh, that's what I try to do, whether it's New York, Detroit, L.A. I've been to the one in Washington, D.C. Each auto show has its own sort of take uh, that's, you know, relative to the region it's in. Uh, 
So I'm, it's a great way to spend the day, quite frankly. Well, it's fun. There's all the sorts, all the cars are there. You can look at them, you can mm-hmm. touch them, you can get that great new car smell throughout I the entire day. <laughs> but uh, Greg, are you, in terms of trends in design features, what's standing out to you this year? I mean, are fins coming back? I wish the answer was yes, but it's no. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with you. I think fins on cars look great. You know, you think back to the 1959 Cadillac, the 1957 Chevy. Those are, you know, legendary designs. What we're seeing now is an increase, uh, increased emphasis on aerodynamics, which makes the car, uh, you know, kind of move through the air in a more sleeker, more efficient way. That helps fuel efficiency. That helps if you have an EV, get better range. Those are all very, like, it's form and function. Uh, and we're seeing more minimal designs too, minimalistic, which I think is interesting. Uh, Less sort of, you know, gaudy features, less chrome, things like the wheels, the the headlights, which often are LEDs now. uh, They're a little more understated on many vehicles. Uh, And each brand tries to carve out its own niche as far as what they stand for. You know, Lexus and Chevy perhaps are a little more, you know, over the top, I've noticed. And, you know, for my, for my eyes, if you will, brands like Volkswagen, uh, sometimes Kia could be a little more understated. Uh, that's why it's great to be a car enthusiast is, you know, there's all these different takes on the segment. Greg, we have just a few seconds left and I know you're not, you, you don't have any favorites, but what car out there right now is catching your eye and would you make an absolute must stop if you were at an auto show to see? Oh, I think it's always fun. You got to look at the off-roaders, whether it's a Jeep, whether it's a Ford Bronco, whether it's a Rivian, check out the off-roaders. It's fun. You know, go play in the mud, have some fun. Those are always good. Because I know he loves his job because I'm sure you get to test drive some really cool vehicles. Thank you so much. Greg Migliore is the editor-in-chief of Autoblog. We appreciate you being on Studio 2, Greg. Thank you very much. And that's it. We did it. For Studio 2 today, for more of our show, you can follow WHYY on all social platforms and download Studio 2 wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's program. Joan Isabella is our audio general manager. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Matt Gillum, happily holding down the fort today. I've enjoyed working with you today, Matt. I am Cherry Gregg. Thank you, friends, for listening and for joining us this week.